Welcome to episode 182 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, this is kind of a bonus episode. Uh, it is uh, a panel discussion of attribution that I moderated at Georgia Tech's 15th Annual Cybersecurity Summit, uh, and the participants in the panel were Kristen Goodwin uh, of Microsoft, Microsoft, Rob Kanaki of the Council on Foreign Relations, Hannah Kukler of the Financial Times, and Kim Zetter, uh, who is an investigative journalist and the author of a 2014 book on Stuxnet. Uh, there was a Further participants, uh, who was uh, uh, from the FBI Atlanta office, but he had approval to speak, but not to have his remarks distributed uh, far and wide on the Steptoe uh, uh, website and on the Cyberlaw podcast. So um, rather than spend a lot of time trying to get clearance and slowing down the release of the podcast, uh, we edited out his remarks as we went forward. Uh, uh, I don't think you'll notice it, except in one place where I'll, I'll step in and explain what uh, he was, uh, uh, what he said that triggered uh, further discussion. Um, so it's going to be a great uh, uh, panel. Uh, it's a deep dive on attribution. Uh, I, I left out the Q&A because we got to an hour and it seemed as though that was probably as much as anyone wants to listen to the Cyberlaw podcast for. So uh, if you're feeling bad about that, uh, next time I suggest you go to the 16th Annual Cybersecurity Summit at uh, Georgia Tech. And now without further ado, let's let's jump to my first question to Kristen Goodwin. Uh, let's start with Kristen, because I name-checked her. Uh, 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 Microsoft has done a lot on attribution. Uh, it's done a lot with government and on its own. Uh, um, how do you see the division of roles? Who does attribution best? What are the uh, proper roles of uh, um, industry and government in doing attribution? Well, we've got two hours, right? <laughs> That's, I mean, that's, that's really the whole question, isn't it? You know, the, the, the range of attribution that you laid out in your talk, you know, the, the specificity, the ability to identify down to an individual who sits behind an attack that requires the authorities and the capabilities of a government. Uh, you know, that, that requires the, the lawful rights to be able to collect that sort of evidence and that sort of information and then be able to uh, bring the, a case against that individual. But attribution in the private sector space is really a very different thing. You know, we think about threat actors, activity groups, uh, the, the patterns of behavior that make it a, a permissive inference that uh, a particular attack is coming from one group or another, not the, the specific individual. And so I, I think one of the things that we'll, we'll be teasing apart here is just sort of the range of types of and, and standards that you're applying when you engage in attribution. Is it the clear and convincing evidence because you're pursuing a, a criminal investigation? Is it a preponderance of the evidence, as we've done in some of our tort cases? Or is it a permissive inference because you're, you're making a public claim? And each one of those have different motivations, different outcomes, and different reasons. And, and I think it's very, very situationally dependent. So, Kim, 
what's wrong with the attributions that we've been doing recently? Do you, do you have a critique of the government's approach to attribution, or is it basically fine? Well, so far we only have a couple of cases um, where we've had public attribution from, from the government specifically. We've had the Sony hack attributed to North Korea. We've had um, economic espionage uh, operations um, that resulted in some indictments of some Chinese PLA officials. We've had, of course, the DNC hack attributed to Russia uh, intelligence. And don't um, forget the Iranians. The, and the Iranians, yes. Right. We had some indictments against some Iranians we had or DDoSing of, against banks. Yeah, we had a US few arrests of Chinese spies uh, uh, who – it weren't, they weren't pure cyber attacks, but they were uh, partly cyber. So there's been a fair amount of activity. There have been, but there uh, – so it's really uh, – I think the, uh, one of the problems is that we don't know a lot about how the government does its attribution. And we're um, asked to accept uh, the conclusions they reach or the public conclusions they reach that they provide us without giving us <laughs> – um, the details for how they achieved um, that resolution. Is that different from journalists who say, I talked to three sources and I'm not going to tell you who they are, but uh, they all said sources. <laughs> um, well, I think the, 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 the consequences are a little different. Um, when you are simply publicly attributing an attack to, let's say, a nation state, um, you, you run the risk of uh, using, uh, politicizing the attribution, right? And also, if you're going to bring sanctions against a nation, I, I mean, let's forget about the indictments for a second, but sanctions um, and you don't provide evidence for, for the sanctions, you're setting a precedent for other nations to do the same thing against the U.S., right? Um, the indictments are less of a concern, um, but you're setting a precedent for um, other nation states to accuse the U.S. of attacks, um, and um, sanctions aren't going to be the problem with the U.S. either. But other nations don't necessarily operate on our plane. Um, we could, for instance, see NSA TAO hackers um, assassinated. Um, so, you know, we're not all operating at the same level. And so I think that when you're, when you're playing the attribution game and publicly pointing a finger but not willing to provide the evidence, and I understand the reason for not providing the evidence. If it's classified, you don't want to um, reveal sources and methods. Um, but you're also creating a new risk then for the, the U.S. hackers. Um, and not just U.S. hackers, but infrastructure providers, other things like that. Do you think that risk exists anyway, whether we attribute it or not? If, if a foreign government can, can, can identify TAO hackers and has the, uh, the gumption to physically attack them, uh, aren't they going to do that whether or not we call out uh, Putin? I think that there's more an incentive, though, as a retaliation, right? Um, so I think that, you know, when, when you are taking actions against another nation state or against its uh, citizens, um, there's more of an incentive than to uh, do some kind of um, retaliation against U.S. hackers and infrastructure providers. Well, let me ask Rob to, to jump in because you see the foreign relations issue. Kim has said uh, we may be making more problems for ourselves than we're solving by just uh, uh, outing uh, the people that we think uh, have attacked us without providing a complete breakdown of uh, uh, the evidence that we're relying on. Uh, do you think that's going to be a long-term problem, uh, and what's the solution? 
So, I mean, I think what we've been going through and certainly what we went through in the Obama administration was this very careful process of figuring out how to do attribution, what amount of information we could release, how we could substantiate uh, the conclusions we were drawing, and how we could get others in the industry to back them up. I think if you look at the attributions that have been done, you're able to point to not only what the U.S. government says, but to what CrowdStrike and Mandian or FireEye and Symantec have said. And so you're able to build up a case that's not just the U.S. government saying it was North Korea, but others being able to look at the evidence that the U.S. government presents, pair it with their own evidence, and arrive at the same conclusion. And so I think through the process of doing this a few times, we've gotten better at it. The real issue does become, and I think you alluded to this, a question of sources and methods, right? If you're going to burn down your ability to collect intelligence every time you do attribution, you're not going to be able to do it again. And so that's the fine line that I think we're always balancing and we'll have to continue to balance. Let me challenge that just a little, and I sort of touched on this. If the U.S. government said, we know it was the Russians because we broke into the FSB's network and we found the instructions. Um, now, the FSB knows we've broken into their network, um, but we know the Chinese broke into the OPM network. Uh, does that mean that they'll never get in again? I don't think so. Uh, telling people you broke into their network one, it's not a secret, and two, it doesn't really tell them how to keep you out, does it? Well, I think you're making an assumption that attribution is always something that's going to be done over the network. Mm -hmm. I think if you peel back the onion on the attribution uh, for Russian interference in the election, it suggests, and I don't know this, but it suggests that there was a lot of human intelligence involved. Right? And so on that basis, you really have to think about those sources and methods different from the sources and methods in the singing world, right? If you're talking about, yeah, we're going to lose access to a computer, that's okay. Yes, they're going to re-image uh, that computer. On the other hand, if it's a human intelligence source, there's no re-imaging a human being, right? I mean, if they are taken out, if they are arrested because they were a source of ours, that's something that that is highly consequential, not just in terms of the ability to collect future intelligence, but also in terms of a, a moral question. So let me push it back uh, uh, to Kim and maybe to Hannah. Um, is this just the press saying, you know, your sources should be public and mine should be private? Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, um, you gave us a lot of information, but I didn't get a scoop, so I want more. Um, or is there some line that you think ought to be observed? and, and Tell me which of the attributions the U.S. government has made you think they inadequately justified. Where do I start? Yeah. Um, so the problem, what is, so when I talked about uh, the fact that they only do, you know, they can't reveal sources and methods, and so we don't get the classified version of the attribution, is the public information that they have provided has been problematic. First of all, it's not uniform across the board. So we might get some indicators of compromise for one attack, and another attack we get absolutely none. Um, you know, we all know what happened with the Grizzly Step in indicators of compromise. There were Actually, unpack that for the, the audience. I, I think everybody here uh, knows and regrets that uh, uh, episode, but it would be useful to hear about it. 
So the, when the government, when the uh, ODNI uh, Office of Director of uh, National Intelligence uh, revealed the JAR report uh, indicating, w- providing indicators of compromise for the Russian, supposedly Russian-backed DNC hack, um, the IP addresses that they provided were a jumbled mess. Some of them were Tor exit nodes. Some of them were proxies. They don't really tell you anything. Um, when they listed uh, or they were listing um, the, uh, w- what they were attributing to actors of Russian intelligence, um, they listed APT28, APT29, but then they listed things like Agent BTZ, which is malware, not uh, a group. Um, they listed uh, Black Energy, another malware operation attack, not a group. It really undermined their credibility and made people think that they really had no idea what they were doing. And you've got to imagine that there's a group of people that are, that are reviewing this before it gets released, or at least that's the assumption, right? This is really important release that they're providing, and it was just another mess. Um, if we look at the, the indictments... Now, so I, w- I will say, yeah. uh, you might think they had plenty of time, yeah. but um, they released that like Christmas week, uh, and the Obama administration, which wanted to release it, did not have more than three weeks to get it out, uh, and they, they wanted desperately to get it out before um, the new administration came into and, office. But yet, the, the intrusions had happened the previous spring, so you have six months uh, you don't necessarily have to release this, but you had six months to produce a report for internally government. And if that's the internal government report, then we have a lot of problems. So, Rob, um, what do you think happened there? Uh, and and uh, do you think it's, it was a mistake or justifiable? I think it was justifiable. I mean, I think that the issue is what you say it is, right? You're talking about the kind of thing that probably would have taken six months on a fast track to vet through the intelligence community normally and get a report like that out. So it did have that ironclad feel that usually these kinds of assessments when publicly released have. So, I mean, I think you're really talking about a a time pressure that was obviously politically motivated by the end of the administration and a fear that this would not get out in the next administration. So, uh, Hannah, uh, do you share Kim's view that the government's not doing, the U.S. government is not doing a good enough job of uh, uh, providing the evidence for its attributions? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's another really big reason to require greater transparency, and it's not just about foreign powers and the relationship uh, with them. It's about the U.S. government's relationship with its own public, right? You know, every action that we take in a national security sphere, we want to be seen as legitimate, especially if we're going to go down the road of having, you know, more and more war and more and more attacks being cyber-related rather than um, kinetic or, or whatever. And at the moment, there is no explanation. And you have to put this in the broader picture, which is no one trusts the experts anymore. There's an awful lot of fake news and misinformation flying everywhere. And if you put out a small piece of information without any clarification, then you actually can do more damage than good. And I don't necessarily mean you have to point and say your sources. Like, I think both journalists and governments are, you know, should be protecting sources who are not able to speak to people otherwise without some kind of secrecy. But I do think that you need to admit that these things aren't always clear. 
you need to say, you know, what level of certainty you are addressing this with, whether it's like Kristen was talking about with some kind of, you know, this is something that we're certain of before, beyond reasonable doubt or with a fair preponderance of evidence, or you could create a system which was actually easier to understand for the public and said, you know, this is something, you know, like, for example, the levels of, um, of national security. So people say, you know, there's a critical emergency or there's a, uh, you know, there's a serious, severe chance of attack or something, something that people can understand, but that admits that we're not always 100% certain. Don't you think that the U.S. government has done that? Uh, I think when the attribution of uh, some of these attacks uh, uh, to the Russians was announced, uh, two agencies said uh, we attributed to the Russians with high confidence, and the National Security Agency said we attributed to the Russians with moderate confidence. Isn't that exactly what you were asking for? Well, maybe though the fact that the different agencies is having different levels is going to be very confusing to the public. You know, we have to start with a, a you know, acknowledgement that cybersecurity is still something that the public has not got their head around at all, as we acknowledge from, you know, problems with passwords and patching and really, really basic things. So to have agencies disagree on that is not entirely helpful. Um, and I also think that there needs to be, uh, you know, maybe more of a level of sort of understanding and pointing out where things have been sort of, people have been slightly tricked, and this isn't necessarily the U.S. government, but, we, you know, we did have a lot of confusion in the press about, you know, would Guccifer 2.0, for example, taking, um, taking responsibility for the DNC hack, and there was never any kind of explicit explanation to, to say, well, why that is not true and this is true. Well, Guccifer 2.0 was the Russians, and so <laughs> you know, they, they, maybe they were taking uh, uh, responsibility. So, uh, Rob, you've had to struggle with these questions in government. Uh, um, how do these solutions or proposals fit with what the government's uh, value structure and constraints are? So, I mean, the view in the Obama administration, and this may change, was always that we're going to do attribution when we think it is in our interest, that we will not always contribute the resources of the U.S. government to attribute basic cybercrime, and we will not always uh, do attribution when... While the activity may be something we don't like, we wouldn't want to see happen, but if it's not outside the norms that we're trying to propose, right? And so we did attribution when it came to Chinese intellectual property theft, right, all the way down to indictments. We did attribution when it came to North Korea trying to stifle freedom of speech in this country, even though it was a bad Seth Rogen movie, right? That that kind of circumstance is when the U.S. government wants to stand up and say, look, we have the proof, we know who did this, we're going to take actions against it. If you look at the cases where the U.S. government did not officially come out and say who the actors were, those tended to be situations in which it was kind of more run-of-the-mill intelligence, right? There was a time not so long ago when, when the Russians were kind of, you know, the, the admired adversary in cyberspace, right, they were really good technically, and they came in cleanly, and they were targeted. But more than that, they were going after the White House, the State Department, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right? These were what we said, yeah, this is legitimate intelligence targets, right? Not bad on them, bad on us. We should have protected those networks better because that was the kind of norm we wanted, right? 
espionage happens. Espionage is the second oldest profession, right? This is something that we know is going to move into cyberspace. So in those cases, we want to say, mm, yeah, this happened and we're not going to attribute it because that's good. That's what you're supposed to do, China. That's what you're supposed to do, Russia. When China and Russia did things that we think are outside international norms that we're supporting, stealing IP theft, interfering in our elections, that's when we want to do an attribution. So, Kim, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't press you on this, but I, I want to come back to you. Which uh, attribution do you, would you say? A, a grisly step, I, I agree, that was – my view on that is DHS always puts out indicators of compromise for people who want to look to see whether they might have been the victim of an attack similar to this. And what they had was a list of things that tell you you're screwed. Uh, and uh, they always put it out. It was not attribution data. It was sold, I think, by the White House and maybe by ODNI as attribution data when it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And that produced, you know, a disaster for the, uh, 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 the intelligence communities uh, and for DHS. Uh, um, but Putting that aside, where has there been an attribution where you would say, oh, this is obviously insufficient? Um, well, we, again, we haven't had too, too many examples. I think the Sony hack is, uh, was the first one where we had, where we had a lot of problems with that. And I think that, um, you know, sort of the, the um, cooperation between private sector and uh, multiple actors that you need to do attribution um, but really, none of those attributions matter except signals intelligence. Forensic attribution is not sufficient uh, to be attributing uh, for political purposes. Um, it really, really, so you, you think no, no matter how much evidence mm-hmm. that we can call forensic or circumstantial uh, um, there is, uh, I'll grant you there's always, there's always a possibility that somebody really clever has faked it all and is trying to blame somebody else for their act of, uh, of espionage. Either not intentionally trying to blame or simply they, they, it was expedient for them to borrow a tool or to hijack um, a command and control server. So I think with the Sony hack, what we had was, uh, and, and we didn't have very much, we had much less than the Grizzly, the, the DNC hack. Um, what we had was, uh, and again, this is problematic for me when it's coming from private companies. But what we had was uh, private companies producing a report that said that the malware used in the Sony hack, um, this is the basis of the attribution, the malware used in the Sony hack is the same malware or parts of the components are the same components that were used in a previous attack that we're attributing to North Korea. Therefore, this attack is now North Korea. But that's using a previous attack as the basis of the attribution. And the previous attack they're referring to were attacks against South Korea that targeted uh, bank systems and media outlets. It was a simultaneous attack. Um, And that malware is attributed to North Korea, but that attribution in the South Korea attack was also problematic. So you're now taking an attribution and basing it on a previous attack where the attribution there was problematic, and you're saying now this is the justification for this. So that's what I think is a huge problem, and that started the government's problem with attribution. I mean, the security community was extremely vocal about uh, the problems of that attribution. And, and if we look at the DNC hack, the FBI never examined those servers. And not only did they never examine the servers, as far as I know, they never examined an image of the servers. What they did was they obtained, the DNC wouldn't allow the FBI to look at the servers. 
Uh, only CrowdStrike looked at them, and CrowdStrike produced a report. And the FBI had to ask uh, the client, the customer, DNC, can we see a copy of that report? And that's what the FBI saw. So I think that that's problematic. And I understand, I understand the limitations when a victim isn't cooperating, um, but the victim, DNC, was the one that urged the government to come out publicly and, and accuse Russia. So when you have a victim that, for its own agenda, wants that public attribution, the DNC wanted that attribution because they thought actually it would give uh, the Democrats and Hillary Clinton some sympathy if Russia was hacking them, if, if the public was, um, was seen as Russia hacking them. So when you have that, um, when you have that problem where the government can actually even get access to the, the evidence and is relying on a third-party company, I think we're getting into really muddy ground here. And there are some other issues around that, but we can talk about that with a, a different uh, So Kim also raised the question of payback uh, and uh, uh, the consequences for companies or governments uh, if the, uh, the attribution uh, is, uh, causes offense. Uh, um, this is a delicate issue for companies as well as for uh, the, uh, uh, the government that does the attribution. And nobody's been closer to the risks of getting squeezed in that uh, uh, situation than Microsoft, which has to persuade 100 governments around the world, or maybe it's 200 now, that it's trustworthy and on their side uh, uh, in contexts where uh, side-picking is uh, mandatory. I, how bad do you think attribution will be for the ability of companies to serve all governments? C could you hand me your soapbox? I'd love to borrow that. <laughs> you know, I, it, what's so frustrating about the discussion of, of, uh, of attribution is that it misses the underlying uh, uh, contextual challenge, which is that governments are still wrestling with the meets and bounds of what does cyber warfare mean, what are the rights of states in, in uh, uh, attacking one another in the online space, and what does deterrence in the face of that type of activity look like? You know, this is, this is such a different paradigm because the products and services that the private sector makes are the weapons. They are the utilities of these attacks. And so from a private sector perspective, that is a significant issue. And when, when we look at this, this space, how do we enable deterrence? Uh, is really the foundational question. How do we encourage governments to, to refrain from launching cyber attacks, uh, from creating new weapons that are part of a, a product or a service that we offer? So our core value is how do we increase the cost of attack so that it's making it more difficult? How are we encouraging governments to deter themselves and, and change their behavior? Does it, does it, uh, does it mean that, that we're comfortable, you were, you were heading down the direction of, of hacking back and, and uh, taking some of those more uh, um, active defense activities? You know, look at some of the active defense measures we've taken. We've sued uh, Strontium, APT28, uh, for misuse of domain names that enabled us to, to take, take down um, certain servers that were being used in, in malicious attacks. Does it mean that the activity group behind APT28 or Strontium can't go out and 
rename more domains? Of course not. Of course they can buy that. that that's a, but they really love your names, don't they? They well, really like you know, looking they, like, uh, like Microsoft. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, but, but at the core of it, why? It's because it's social engineering. And so right. they're tricking people into looking at domains that look like ours, that look like Cisco's, that look like other companies. And so for us, being able to bring a case, it's a tool in a toolbox. Uh, you know, we haven't really talked about the, the, the underlying issue behind that, which is that um, some of these attacks are against infrastructures, so it's nation-state on significant resource defender, and then some of it's nation-state on, on citizen, on individual. And um, those are, are extremely hard to protect. And so the, the attribution side of who did it uh, always has the, the other side of how do you protect so that we don't get to that to that point and we we are taking away the weapons and we're making the use of the weapons harder. Um, that's a big part of what we think about on the private sector side. Isn't attribution actually in that context bad for you? It's one thing to sue something called APT 28. Right. Right. But if everybody knows and APT 28 admits it's a nation state uh, that uh, I won't ask you to name, I, a, then when you bring that lawsuit, you're going to get called into the embassy and told, we've admitted that this is us, stop suing us. It is, a, it is a slippery slope, but I think that's why you see companies like Microsoft investing so heavily in the concept of diplomacy. You know, you've seen our chief legal officer call for the need for a digital Geneva Convention. You know, as attorneys, we can argue about is it an act of war, is it not? But the, the label is right that we need nation states to start to have a, a real open conversation about the actions that they're taking and the reciprocal effects that they have and the fact that they're using and, and weaponizing the tools of the private sector. And as you extrapolate this current environment out 10 years, that's IoT, that's AI. So the problems that we have today will only accelerate into the future. So we have to continue to play the diplomacy card. So it isn't about suing a particular threat actor and then having that customer turn around and raise that in a very difficult meeting. It's about getting states to realize that they have to hit cyber detente at some point. And what's the, what's the balance? We so I think that's a great question, and I want to bring other folks in. Rob, uh, uh, where do you think, you know, attribution is one thing. Deterrence is what you hope you get from attribution plus something else. Uh, what is the plus something else, and uh, have we uh, started to make it work? So I think the playbook we used on China actually did work, right? And it's, this took probably five years to go from a point at which intellectual property theft really wasn't on the bilateral agenda with China to a point at which it was the top issue on the bilateral agenda. And essentially it was threatening cooperation in other areas that China wanted that I think got them to the table and, and got them to finally agree that they were going to 
if not stop, at least ramp down this activity. And I think we've seen that they've done that. But in order to get there, and we used every tool that, that we had, right, which was economic sanctions, it was law enforcement indicting, and I think it was really threatening China's great power status, right? It was really saying, you can't be a leading superpower in the world and a kleptocracy. And it got to a point where you know, they just wanted this issue off the table. Now, it may really mean that what the Chinese did was they got a lot better, and we'll find them in five years crawling all over our commercial networks, and we'll have this conversation again. But they got to a point where they were finally embarrassed about getting caught all the time. So I think that succeeded. Now, if you look at Russia, none of those tools are going to work with Russia. Right? They, Russia has no – Putin has no sense of embarrassment. He has really no – ability or desire to be a great world power again, right? He's a declining power. And so you can't threaten him or manipulate him in the same way that you can manipulate the Chinese. And so I think we're really in a place where we can do all the attribution we want, but it's probably not going to affect Russia's activity in this realm, which really scares me for the 2018 and 2020 elections. I don't think we have a playbook for what to do with the knowledge that Russia is acting in this way. So, Kim, do you think that um, deterrence really works? And do you agree with Rob that uh, it worked in the Chinese uh, cyber commercial espionage case? I, I, you know, I, I don't know if it worked. I know that there's been a lot of criticism of, of the conclusions that uh, I think it was Mandiant and maybe CrowdStrike as well who said that they saw a, uh, a major decrease in activity of these Chinese PLA groups. Maybe they just went underground. Maybe they just got better at hiding their tracks and they stopped using the same malware and the same uh, uh, command and control servers. So I, I'm not sure that we actually know definitively if it worked. Um, I think that, I mean, indictments of individuals can work in a certain sense. If, I mean, so if you look at the ones against the Iranians, right, um, where... Iran is a country um, where people there, scientists, tech, technologists, um, they, they, they rely on leaving the country a lot, right? They want to come here for um, scientific exchanges. They want to come here for academic conferences and things like that. Um, if you are indicting those kind of people who are, who are traveling, it makes it much more difficult for them to travel. Um, and it, so it does, it does sort of raise the, the bar for them. Uh, consequentially to engage in that kind of activity in the future. Um, but I think that just the kinds of attacks that we were attributing, DDoS attacks, for God's sake, um, what we consider graffiti, um, we're doing nation-state attribution over. I mean, I, I, I think that we have you, to just... You, you heard the just, banks howling. Hanna, weren't the bank, banks howling over that? Of course they yeah. were. <laughs> so it, 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 we wasn't, it wasn't graffiti to them. It was interfering with their ability to do business. Was it? Well, Hannah? Well, I it was it wasn't completely interfering with their ability to do business, but I think it points to the fact that, you know, the banks have put huge amounts of money and resources and yet still the private sector cannot defend itself. Um, whether we need to name and shame in that case, I don't know, but I, I, I definitely agree with the banks that they should be howling for some public sector help. So it wasn't 
infradig, uh, it wasn't belief the dignity of the U.S. government to say this attack came from Iran if it did come from Iran and it was causing pain, right? It, it's, I mean, it's certainly the the purview of the uh, the, commun- the criminal uh, law enforcement to go after hackers who are who are violating crimes. Certainly, if someone is launching a DDoS attack, it's certainly something we're expecting law enforcement to do if they have the goods on who the individuals are to indict them. Um, but this was at the level, this was presented at the level of the indictments against the PLA, of the indictments against North Korea, and of the indictments against Russia. And it just didn't rise to that level. So my memory is there was just recently a, a story in the press that suggested that if the uh, Trump administration um, withdraws from the Iran uh, nuclear. The nuclear deal, that um, one of the consequences is that Iran will start launching cyber attacks on U.S. companies. Might have been an FT article, but I can't remember. Um, a, that suggests that somebody, probably in the Iranian government, thinks that what they did last time had an effect on the negotiations and would have an effect on the U.S. enthusiasm from with, for withdrawing from the nuclear deal, uh, which sounds pretty significant for something you characterized as defacing property. Well, we don't know that the attacks that they would uh, do in retaliation for that would be DDoS attacks, right? I mean, uh, those DDoS attacks were what year? 2000 and... I want to say... 12, 13, 12. 14, I think. Yeah. And, they were, and they were at that time... Uh, they were said to be retaliation for Stuxnet, right? That that and the uh, the Shamoon attack on Saudi Aramco, which wiped 30,000 machines clean, um, were all sort of said to be um, the consequences of Stuxnet, or retaliation for Stuxnet. Um, but we've had a few years, right, since then, and even if the Iranians themselves don't have skills for more destructive attacks, they certainly have the money to buy uh, the the skills from mercenaries. Um, so I don't know that it will be a DDoS attack. Um, it could be something more consequential. Also, the other thing about a DDoS attack is, yes, sometimes it is the equivalent of graffiti, but in the banking system, when trusted everything and reliability is everything, you know, you can and, sow and two the hours sense. of inability to, to make a trade is a big deal, right? Well, yeah, a few minutes is a big deal. You see the flash crashes and things. Um, you know, you see the huge attempts to, to sow distrust in the election. There's going to be huge attempts to sow distrust in the financial system, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the most sophisticated or destructive attack. Uh, Rob, do you think that, that those DDoS attacks, which had a feel of more of a demonstration of capability rather than a uh, serious attack, it was like uh, they said, okay, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we're going to attack you for two hours at a time, and we're going to rotate the bank just to show we can get you to, we can get you, you know, um, these negotiations over the nuclear deal, they better go well or uh, we will take the gloves off. Do you think it had an actual impact on the negotiations? No, but for a particular reason, which was that despite the – I mean, the banks, when these were going on, they were calling everybody that they could think of, right? I think Jamie Dimon probably called the president himself, right, to say, you've got to do something about this, right? And they really meant it. I mean, the banks wanted the U.S. to go to war over this, <laughs> right? They, I mean, they had 
They, they took their case, as they always do, to the Wall Street Journal, right, when they didn't like the answer they got from, from the Obama administration. And they, they said, look, you know, we want the U.S. government to do something. What do we want them to do? We either want them to, A, hit back, or B, block the attacks, right? It's like, okay, well, this is interesting. So let's see if we, let's take block the attacks. Okay, we'll just fire up the Great Firewall of the United States, and we'll block them, Right. We don't have one of those, so but the banks wanted us to. We did. It was Kaspersky. <laughs> you know, the banks essentially wanted us to reinvent the internet so that we could stop these attacks. And then on the other side of it, they wanted us to go and hit back, right? And this, I think, gets to one of the problems of you know attribution or its value, right? Yeah, the Iranians were behind the attacks. We all know that now that's public. But guess what? The attacks were not streaming out of Tehran, right? They compromised servers all over the world to carry out the attacks. Where were most of those servers? They were in the United States. Most of them were in Texas. So it's like, okay, we're going to launch Cyber Command to go take out GoDaddy in Texas. I wonder what the repercussions <laughs> of that will be constitutionally, legally, et cetera, right? So, you know, I think to mention Ted Cruz's prospects for the president. <laughs> so, I mean, I think we were, we were put in this position of saying, okay, you know, what do we think our best response? And the best response to the U.S. government then, and I think in hindsight it proved to be true, was to do nothing. Was to say nothing. Was to essentially say to the banks, you're on your own. Because if we'd responded, we probably would have disrupted the negotiations over the nuclear deal, which at the time... I don't think anybody in the cyber office, including my boss, was aware of, right? It was something that was happening inside the restricted small group, right? I mean, taking so so small in terms of the number of people who knew about it. And they got to call the shot and say, yeah, no, we're not going to do anything against this. And they didn't tell us why. I, I just find it ironic that we're, we're talking about whether or not the DDoS attacks um, can influence uh, whether or not the U.S. remains in the nuclear agreement. Look at Stuxnet. I mean, Stuxnet was, in part, um, uh, credited with bringing Iran to the table for the nuclear negotiations, in addition to sanctions and assassination of nuclear scientists, all played a role in bringing them to the table. Um, but, you know, a major cyber attack conducted by the U.S., uh, you know, helped to bring Iran to that table. So... And we were named and weren't particularly shamed uh, in that context. We were named and shamed. We, uh, well, I, 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 the U.S. always likes to uh, formally say we've never, we've never acknowledged that, but they launched a leak investigation. Who leaked information about this covert operation stuck that? And you don't launch a leak investigation for a covert operation you didn't do. So. <laughs> well, that would be, it would be good OPSEC if you did, but. Uh, <laughs> um, so, Kristen, let me ask, you, you spend a lot of time talking to other governments. Uh, how much confidence do they have in attribution? I've, I, I've sensed skepticism even among our allies about whether attribution can be done with the confidence that the U.S. is displaying. Uh, um, is that your experience, too? I've had a number of governments raise the issue of false flags. How, do you, how are you so confident uh, in this threat actor and this activity group. And uh, you know, what, what I've experienced in, in working with the, the security community is that um, 
if we were if we were catching false flags, I mean, if there, if there were false flags out there, they would have to be so exquisitely done with such expertise and so many resources that, you know, is it possible that one or two get by? Sure, but the level of effort would mean that there are very few agencies around the world that could actually pull that off. And so the, the lion's share of, of false flag claims are actually just that, false flags. So I, I think it's, it's a bit of a distraction when governments are saying, well, how do you know? How do you know for sure? And it's like, well, I can't. I'm not a nation state. I don't have the power to go and subpoena information and uh, seize people and records the same way you do as a government. However, um, I can look at, at data that, that I've built and, and information that I have within my space, and I can make a reasonable inference. And when my outcome is trying to deter a, uh, a government that hasn't admitted yet from the four Windows vulnerabilities they used in the Stuxnet attack, then my outcome and my goal is different. So the false flag issue is really less of a, of the, of a problem or a concern, I think. So, um, Rob, we've made it very difficult for uh, uh, the uh, PLA hackers that uh, um, we identified uh, in the indictments to take vacations in the United States or to, to do what I assume everybody in the PLA hacker unit wants to do, because everybody in ours wants to do it, which is to do a startup and then get funded on Silicon Valley. Um, they're they're going to have to do all their pitches by Skype. Uh, oh, please, don't use Skype. <laughs> uh, but do you see that working out the other in the other direction? Uh, would you tell people who have had a history in the... Uh, the U.S. intelligence community, that they really should never take a vacation in China or Russia? So, I mean, this gets back to something that you had in your presentation, right? How good is the tradecraft of people who are carrying out this activity in the United States? And can they be caught and can they be identified? I mean, I think if you look at the Chinese indictments, they made a couple really sloppy decisions. I think one of them logged into a computer in the U.S. and then ordered something on Amazon and then had it shipped to himself back in China, right? So, you know, hopefully our trade crafts a little bit better than that. But I, I think it is a reason. I don't know. You know, all of our people trusted the Office of Personnel Management with their data. <laughs> I mean, I think it is a reasonable question exactly. that we need to think about, right? Do we, when we do these indictments, and I was sort of surprised by the Iranian indictments because I was like, can't we just let bygones be bygones on this one, right? Was it really worth it if we were trying to reach some sort of detente with Iran? Is going after uh, these individuals who are acting under orders from their government the best way to do that? And what does that mean in terms of potential blowback to our operatives? I think it's a very serious concern. Hannah, let me, let me shift to another way of um, ensuring uh, security that might improve attribution. Um, the G20 uh, recently said, you know, and this, this includes the Russians, the Chinese, the Turks, the Indians, uh, a lot of people who are not traditional Western uh, um, uh, nations, um, they, they said, 
you know what we all condemn? Attacks on the financial system that uh, the integrity of financial data, which is, you know, using uh, uh, cyber uh, uh, tools to screw at least with the the assurance that the data is correct. Uh, They did not say it's a bad thing to break into banks and figure out whose money is going where, uh, probably because too many of them were doing it. Um, But they all were prepared to say, if you screw with the integrity of the data, the whole system could collapse, and we all condemn it. Um, is Is there a possibility to turn something like that into a system at least focused on who's breaking into banks and doing stuff that is risky? And I would I'm, I'm confident, Kim notwithstanding, that the North Koreans have done that and will do it again. Uh, but there are very few other governments that are prepared to do that. Is, is, there, is, the, is there a kernel of a, an enforcement system that says, we're going to do attribution on these attacks, and then we're, as a G20, which is 97% of global trade, going to impose some kind of sanction uh, as opposed to just relying on the U.S.? I mean, I think it would be great if it did happen. I do think that, that we can't just, you know, rely on the U.S. or one country. Um, I, my problem with that picture overall is that banks don't sit by themselves, mm-hmm. right? Banks are part of a greater financial ecosystem. We've seen the SEC hack. Um, we've seen last year uh, PR Newswire got hacked. So if you want to play with trust in the financial system, you know, those things looked like they were potentially insider trading rather than distorting the picture. But you can do it at so many different steps along the way that it seems hard for me that any institution, especially the G20, um, you know, which is dealing with all different countries and all different financial systems, can come in and say, you know, we want to make sure that these, you know, these are banks and therefore we protect them. Fair enough. I mean, we, we got into the mess we're in because of uh, AIG and Bear Stearns, not, not because uh, a particular bank went down. Uh, so uh, what you're saying is if you're, once you start saying the integrity of the financial system and financial data is what we're protecting, you really have to go a long way beyond just banks. Yeah, I mean, you should start by doing things like Let's make SWIFT secure. That would have been a good idea. But um, it's so difficult to define, like, you know, what is an institution that handles financial data anymore? Yeah, my impression was that SWIFT was securely transmitting the uh, orders of a hacked bank. Uh, Well, let's make sure sure everyone on the network is, yeah. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Kim, Kim, your thoughts on that? Um, I, I mean, I think that data integrity attacks are our future. I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, we've seen data theft, we've seen data dumping, we've seen data destruction, and I think data integrity is, I'm, I'm sure it's already happening. We've seen at least a, a, a New York Times report about uh, the U.S. Uh, conducting some kind of data integrity attacks against North Korea's missile, um, causing uh, misfirings and things like that. Um, I our weapons systems. the G20, systems, they'd say, "Good, do a, do a little more." Well, our weapon <laughs> systems also have software components to them, and if you're getting into the supply chain um, or doing some other kind of, uh, you know, altering the code so that an air defense system can no longer detect missiles coming in or things like that, um, I think that that's a problem that we're looking at. And banks is another issue. 
um, in terms of the algorithms for, for trading. Um, these things operate on PLCs, which are the things that Stuxnet uh, attacked, uh, very vulnerable systems. And so I think, yeah, I think that, um, you know, when we're talking about uh, sort of the, like what should be off limits in terms of critical infrastructure, um, I think it's sort of pie in the sky to think that we can say because because attribution can be difficult, um, that you can't necessarily get countries to agree for, in the digital realm that things will be off limits. And also, even if you say that things are off limits, there's the interconnectivity um, that you can't necessarily know that you're not aiming for that system. We saw this with Libya when um, we were coming in uh, with allied forces and the government was th the U.S. government was thinking of taking out the Libyan air defense systems and communication systems, and they determined that they didn't understand enough about the interconnectivity of the network, and they decided not to do that. So I think that the, the, whole, the idea of off-limit systems is, is nice and good, um, but I'm not sure in practice it works. Chad? Uh, sorry, uh, Rob, what do you think about this? Is it, is it possible to set aside certain segments? You've, you've written books on this topic. Uh, uh, are, there, are there parts of uh, uh, civilian infrastructure that uh, we can enforceably um, set aside as not going to be attacked? So, I mean, I think the basic problem here is contagion, right? I mean, if you look at the destructive malware attacks from last spring, they went to targets that they were not intended for, right? And so I think what you'd be talking about is in order to set aside certain pieces of infrastructure, you'd also have to ban certain types of attack methods. That is, I think, something that would be very, very hard to get countries to agree to, and it would be almost impossible no, I think it would be impossible to enforce. So I'm not, I'm not really optimistic about that. I, I also think, particularly in the United States, when, when you try and sort of take a, a Geneva Convention approach to this problem, you're going to run into the situation that most of our critical infrastructure is infrastructure that the U.S. military uh, in the continental United States is totally reliant on, right? You can't... Uh, take out the power to a military base without taking out the power to the surrounding area, right? And so that makes our power grid, for better or worse, I would say worse, a legitimate military target by foreign adversaries. So, Kristen, I, my memory is that your Geneva Convention idea was, uh, yes, there, there should be an immunity from attack for one sector, and it's the Microsoft sector. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great starting point. But, no, what, what we're really advocating are cyber norms, you know, norms of behavior for, for nation states that are, uh, exercise restraint in cyber. And, you know, with the collapse of the discussions with the U.N. group of government experts over the summer, it became really clear that, that nation states are not yet ready to, to exercise self-restraint. And so it's, it's really the private sector driving this conversation. And, and there's a lot of inherent tension in the point because nation states don't tend to cede sovereignty to each other or to corporations. Uh, you know, we're not uh, uh, nation state players. And so to watch private sector companies saying, we want a seat at this table, uh, we want to have a, 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 a voice in shaping cyber norms, um, is, is really unique when you look at how that, um, international law tends to, to evolve, at, even at its own glacial pace. But we keep 
uh, and have for many, many years been driving the point home that if governments do not think about limiting attacks on critical infrastructure, uh, not weaponizing private sector tools and services, uh, being targeted when they do act, uh, and having, having uh, clear processes to review their behaviors. If they don't show uniform restraint, then we end up back in this um, uh, attack landscape where in order to, to try to, to uh, bring order to the chaos, we're back in the attribution discussion again. So it's, it's just we continue to try to come up and change the behavior because if you don't change the behavior, we're going to end up again. So, and again. so let me take uh, the step beyond attribution to retribution and to introduce before we let people uh, join the uh, conversation. Uh, just one topic that I'm sure will be consensus, uh, uh, <laughs> which is uh, when private companies can take action uh, outside of their network to uh, attribute and then punish uh, uh, attackers. Uh, um, is there ever a circumstance in which that is appropriate by your lights? When my outside counsel said it was okay. No. Yes. So we, we, uh, we don't take the position that, that hacking back, uh, uh, violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and, and uh, going into somebody else's computer would ever be a, a permissive step. There's some really interesting thinking that, that needs to happen about um, rights of, quote-unquote, self-help in protecting IP if it's been exfiltrated. But if you're wrong and you've attached uh, encryption to somebody else's data, you've basically just launched a ransomware attack. And so how are we going to, to create legal meets and bounds around um, certain scenarios that may or may not be permissive? You know, protecting the theft of a stolen object. Um, it w I have not heard of any cases yet where someone's gotten an order to show cause and gotten the U.S. Marshals out to go seize servers where they believe uh, IP has been stolen to, to bring it down. Uh, it would be really interesting to see, can we test the law in rapid order to show causes? You know, in the Astronium takedown cases, we've had a special master appointed so that we can accelerate how we get domains taken down in order to, to use the legal system to engage in uh, some people call it offensive security. I don't really think it's offensive when you're using the law, but uh, to be more aggressive. But to, to think about actual uh, uh, access or third-party systems for the purpose of scraping data or surveillance or a, a potential next step, um, that's, that's the domain of government. And the, the, there's, there's no consensus that the will of the people want governments to be divesting that right into the private sector, and I don't think that's something we're, we're looking to explore. Okay, let me just jump in here for the one little continuity uh, uh, sentence that uh, might be helpful. Uh, uh, at this point, our FBI participant uh, said, you know, attribution is hard and it's important to get it right, which prompted Kim Zetter to jump in with the following. We actually have a case where Microsoft didn't get it right. Um, prior to the Stronium, one of your first experimental um, mm -hmm. efforts to go through the courts to take down a system ended up taking down a hosting provider that That's hosted right. thousands of legitimate businesses, and That's all right. those legitimate businesses lost access to their uh, 
Yeah, and, and so so the the risk of being wrong is significant. I mean, and that that's a part of of our thinking. You know, this is this is a very risky area. And if you think that hacking back, I mean, it it sounds great. You know, they got me. I'm going to go get them back. Uh, the collateral damage is real. Uh, you know, Kim's absolutely right. You know, if if we're not exquisitely careful, um, then then very legitimate functions. And and you may not know if that server has other critical infrastructures on it, other essential data. Uh, um, so the, the, risks, the risks are great. So I, I'm going to ask, and maybe none of you has uh, uh, any familiarity. There are persistent rumors that during the DDoS attacks uh, that the Iranians launched on U.S. banks, that at least one bank said, oh, screw this, we're just going to go fix the uh, – the computers that are attacking us. It was, would have been easy to send a worm out to, to uh, engage with all of those uh, attacks and to patch the tools that were being used to launch the DDoS attacks. Uh, and there were persistent rumors that that's exactly what happened and that the result was an FBI investigation of the bank for having launched that, uh, uh, that worm. Any evidence of that that you want to talk about? You have, a, have you written a story on this? I haven't written a story on that, but thanks for the tip. Uh-huh. Um, All right. No, but there was another incident with where the FBI did that, with the core flood uh, botnet, where the FBI went to a court and basically said, we want permission to reach, we want permission to contact, so I, I need to get this straight, because they were copying what the uh, law enforcement did in the Netherlands. They, they were the first to do this. They had a botnet that they were going after, and they actually reached out to the infected machines and disabled, with code, disabled the uh, botnet malware on those machines. Um, not a good idea. I think everyone would agree. In the U.S., what they did instead was they got a court to agree that they would um, be able to notify ISPs, and then they would also be able to set um, pop up an alert on infected machines and let them know you're an infected, and uh, if you want to get clean, we can help you clean it. So there was a little. Am I right on that? Was that they didn't. As far as I remember, they didn't. Uh, they didn't trigger a code, but I think they wanted to. Um, and the problem is that our court systems don't understand technology. So a judge uh, listening to a case with the, the FBI uh, coming in and saying it won't harm anything. This is good code. We're going to disable the bad code. And you can imagine that a judge is going to say, Yeah, that sounds good. Um, without really even understanding the, the full. Sounds, sounds like a lot of judges I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyway, so that's the. So, Stuart, can I just add to that? Because I, I think the challenge here is that we wanted to push beyond attribution to an idea of responsibility, right? That, okay, China, you say it wasn't you who carried this out. Cooperate with the investigation. Provide us that evidence. Let us move on from the hot point that we got stopped at inside PLA you know, cyber headquarters and, and show us that it was the Russians or some other criminal group, and therefore we won't blame you. And, of course, the Chinese say, oh, sovereignty, and we're not going to do that, and 300 million Internet users, and we couldn't possibly uh, police them all, so sorry, right? That was the sort of typical response. But if, if you look at these DDoS attacks... The real question becomes not only what what do we expect foreign governments to be responsible for, but what are we willing to be responsible for, and what are we what responsibility are we going to push back on U.S. consumers 
and companies, right? In the case of the DDoS attacks, you know, the response from the hosting companies that were hosting these in, infected WordPress uh, sites was essentially, you know, gee, we operate on a you know, $12 a year business model. We don't have good contact information. We're unwilling to shut down these accounts. Good luck. But that's missing the, 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 the point that every time a nation state decides to create a cyber weapon, that weapon has a life cycle. And that life cycle includes the long tail of uh, the, the, the follow-on attacks. So Flame, you know, first attack attempting to replicate Windows Update, targeting uh, the Middle East, follow-on and, and uh, attack on Iran. And now look at all the update channel attacks that we see everywhere. Mm. So, you know, the nation state talks about what at outcome they want to go achieve, what nation-state objective they want to go. But then we have this long tail of follow-ons and modifiers and people adopting these ideas. So then the, the cyber criminals start to use these. So we can attribute, because we, the dumb ones are the easy ones to find. Like, oh, really? You were using your mom's computer again? Like, those are the ones that attribution is, is fair game for. The challenge is that we keep watching the nation states then evolve their tactics, and they're creating a supply chain that then creates the lower-hanging fruit. So Eternal blue. It's, it's this never-ending cycle. Hannah? I just wanted to pick up on what um, Robert was saying about the $12 business model, because I think that's one of my main concerns with the idea of hacking back, is that, you know, maybe Microsoft, maybe J.P. Morgan has the capability of doing this. But then what we happens is, you know, cyber offensive capabilities become a competitive advantage in the marketplace. And, you know, your new Silicon Valley startup doesn't have the ability to go hack back. And, you know, Microsoft can protect its IP, but everything's being stolen from every other newcomer. And I just don't see how you can square that. Mm. That's why we had, like, the rule of law and as a basis for an economy. Uh, and and you, how's that working out for us? <laughs> <laughs> that actually makes actually helps the economy, right? Because it creates a new revenue stream, like mm -hmm. a new niche uh, industry. Well, the, that's the other thing is, of course, then people it goes into the hands of your, you know, people who can afford. Okay, you might not do it in house, but you can afford, you know, FireEye, and FireEye's got a certificate from the government. But but what if you can't afford FireEye? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and if you can't afford good security, you're not going to have IP very long. Okay. That's where we stopped the panel and went to questions from the audience. I want to really thank the great panel uh, for that uh, deep dive on attribution. And this has been episode 182 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, be sure to keep sending in suggestions for our panelists. We've uh, had a number of really good suggestions and sent out a number of Cyber Law Podcast mugs to people who... Uh, have sent us their uh, suggestions. Uh, you send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, coming up, we've got a whole bunch of terrific, thoughtful people uh, talking about technology and policy, from Richard Danzig, former Secretary of the Navy, to Mike Solmeyer of the Belfer Center. Martin Mikos, the CEO of HackerOne, is going to explain how we should be doing bug bounties uh, and be sure to mark your calendars for November 7 and come on down. That's Election Day, and we will be talking about election security in front of a live audience uh, in the afternoon uh, uh, on, uh, on Election Day at our DuPont Circle offices here in D.C. So if you want to see us uh, performing live, this is your chance. You might even get a beer if you're, uh, uh, if you're quick. 
Uh, so register to make sure we know you're coming and we reserve a seat on the events page of our website at www.steptoe.com. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing you then and we're looking forward to you listening to future episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. <laughs>